introduce our speaker tonight, Wendy. Hi, Wendy. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Wendy. Hey. I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to be sober tonight. And um, I'm going to let you know that I, I say that, that I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to be sober, is because that was what I was taught to do. Um, a lot of things that I'm taught to do in Alcoholics Anonymous are you move a muscle to change a thought, not change a thought to move a muscle. And so um, I'm saying I'm grateful to be here to hopefully bring on the flow of emotion that is gratitude for being here tonight. And I am <laughs> not quite there yet. Um, this is, I am like, honestly, my head is screaming right now. Like I'm having definitely a you guys aren't doing it right moment. Um, you know, when I come, when I'm asked to share in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I always uh, sincerely pray that I say something that helps someone else. That is my, that's my prayer. Um, I don't have anything planned to say, really. I follow the format of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, and I share for the most part in a general way. I get a little detailed in areas just to make it funny, but um, I sh follow in that format, and when I open my mouth, I, I kind of hope that what's supposed to happen happens, and I, and I trust that. Uh, but I am a little bit like right now, so uh, this is like there's no podium and there's music and what's going on? It's not right. Um, I've been coming to this meeting off and on since I got sober, before I got sober this time, and it's just a little bit, what? I, I get, you know, I'm rigid, like I get a little bit inflexible about changes, and so, um, yeah, I'm going to get over myself right now. So I, um, I want to thank everyone for showing up here tonight. It's nice to have a few people to talk to. Um, especially want to thank my friends, uh, Julie, for coming out and participating with me tonight. That was, I mean, honestly, if you hear nothing from me, you heard everything you need to hear from Julie. I really liked what she had to say. She actually, I mean, my head was screaming when I sat down. And it's like she reminded me, oh, yeah, we're here for experience, strength, and hope. And, um, you know, helps. I would thank all my friends that showed up to support me tonight. It's really cool. Um, there's a lot of cool people that, you know, my new friends and my old friends and friends that love and hate me. <laughs> um, I want to thank Scott for asking me to participate in my sobriety. It's always kind of humbling to know where you're at. And um, so anyway, the statistics. Uh, my sobriety date is August 10, 2003. My home group is a do-it-sober group of Alcoholics Anonymous, which means daily in Laguna Woods. Um, and I would be happy to meet anyone there um, if you <coughs> would like to come and participate in our meeting. It's a great group. We have a very strong group. Uh, and uh, my sponsor is Teresa F. in North Hollywood. Uh, those are all three things I hear other people share about, so I'm sharing about them. Um, I know there's a lot of monkey see, monkey do in my sobriety. I don't try to analyze it, or I don't have a dissertation or a PhD. In, what needs to be done, I just know that there are three things that hold me accountable to Alcoholics Anonymous. My sobriety date, my sponsor, and my home group. Um, my sponsor calls me out on some more personal shit, and my home group calls me out on showing up to meetings, and I, I need those things. And my sobriety date is a strong reminder that I don't want to change my sobriety date. And um, I am uh, a hopeless, hope-to-die alcoholic. Um, and for many years into sobriety, I was someone that wanted to kill themselves frequently. Uh, I don't like the way I feel without alcohol in my body. Alcohol is a solution. It is not the problem. Um, let me tell a story just to kind of get you. This is somewhere maybe five years 
this is maybe five, seven years before I actually got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am uh, living in like a, in a house, it's a ranch style house, and there's maybe six or seven bedrooms in the house, and it's completely dilapidated. And all of us are renting rooms. Um, no one actually owns the home. There's like one guy in the master bedroom who knows the owner, and the rest of us are all renting rooms. Some are students, some are waitresses and bartenders, some are people waiting to start their life or whatever, and I'm renting a room in the house, and um, I am in transition from geographic to geographic, from one old life plan to a new life plan, because wherever I go, I drink, I step off the curb, I roll in the gutter, I make a wreck of my life, I, I, I destroy my relationship, and I can't let the people in that old life know me in the next life and so I'm going to move to a new city I'm going to you know I'm going to straighten up and fly right I'm going to throw it into fifth gear I'm not going to drink I'm not going to drink I'm not going to smoke I'm not going to do drugs I'm not going to have an eating disorder I'm not going to end up with all, the, with all the guys I'm not going to steal credit cards I'm not going to write bad checks I'm not going to do all these things that I do all the things that make me feel all my coping skills that make me feel like I'm a, a I'm skirting the rules of society and I'm just kind of because um, I don't honestly I don't even know how to follow the rules in society I just learned all these bad skills and I'm you know, I, I end up in this sort of roommate situation, and um, I'm miserable, and I've lost the guy, and I've lost the friends, and uh, I know no one in this new city, and um, just life is, is a wreck at this point. And I have a mattress, I have my clothes, I have a television, but no furniture to put it on, and I have, you know, it's just this gross brown carpet, and this mattress, um, some sheets that I've like thrown together um, and I, that, the room is a mess. Um, it's got, uh, you know, clothes are thrown everywhere and, you know, in sort of like the binge mode of like, I'm going to put everything in my body I can to feel better. I've got all sorts of over-the-counter pills that I've like broken into, so I've got like uh, no-dose and um, Excedrin PM and like all of this stuff, plus I've got a, any array of psychiatric medications that I, because I've been going to doctors. They've been asking me about alcohol and I've been like, I don't drink. And um, I mean, and I really, I think I believe I meant it because at that moment that I was in their office, I was not drinking. And I could, I could very easily just give it up and you don't know, because you don't know me. You don't know me. You know, I could be like, well, maybe I stopped, you know? And so I've got any array of like, you know, SRI medications on the floor and who knows what else. I just in med bottles. But I'm not taking them because they're the kind of medications they give you from a psychiatrist's office that don't make you feel good. They don't give you a feeling about them. You actually have to take them for a while before they begin to work. And so I'm not about the long-term solution. I'm about right here, right now. And um, so I've got these all over. They're filled and they're all over the room, strewn about, and the clothes and, you know, any degree of cleanliness that you can imagine, you know, all levels of uh, human disgust and I've got um, a couple you know wrappers and bags of Burger King that I've gone out and gotten Burger King and I've like thrown the wrappers in the corner or whatever and then there's this huge Halloween size bag of like miniature Reese's pieces of Reese's peanut butter cups you know but you know how like they have those just insidious little gold wrappers and whatever and so I've got like the little paper cut part all over the floor and I've got these little gold wrappers thrown everywhere and the psychotropic drugs and the easy nose and no dose and whatever and the excedrin PM and it's all over the room with the clothing and whatever and um, so I come to one morning after being drunk the night before and I'm popping um, I think it was excedrin PM it was one of the PMs Advil PM excedrin so I'm popping them and I, um, and I can't get to sleep 
you know? And um, so I keep pumping more, you know? And at some point, I just remember I was standing up and I just started to see blue. Like everything looked blue. And I just really like sent myself into like panic mode, like into like the worst anxiety attack. And so I called the paramedics on myself. Now it's the middle of the day and there's only one other roommate at this home, but everybody's like locked into their rooms. And I don't actually go get the roommate because I don't really even know them. You know, I'm just like, you know. I, you know, so I'm out in the living room and it's all like leftover furniture from the roommates that have been left before. And there was this one recliner and I'm like, I remember just barely, just freaking out, talking to the operator at 911. And the paramedics came in and before you know it, it's like, and I'm this in a small college town, it's like, it's like I'm the event that day, you know what I mean? Like all the cops show up and like all the paramedics show up. It's like not East LA where like you're lucky if you get one, uh, you know, car show. It's like everyone shows up in town and I've got the whole street is like fire engines, paramedics, cop cards, because I'm just like, I'm overdosing and um, on Accenture PM. <laughs> so I'm like laying there. And so then the roommates start coming home, and I just remember as I'm like laying there, I'm just looking at in the state. All of these people are in the living room, they're staring over me, and I'm just like freaking out, and, um, and like, where is my, I mean, why am I here, kind of a thing. And they're asking me questions, ma'am, can you two finger, and they're asking me all these questions. And all of a sudden, <laughs> one of the roommates had a cat. I didn't have cats at the time. I, one of the roommates had a cat, and I guess one of the cats had gone outside and were drawn in a desiccated frog, not a, like a live frog, but it was a desiccated frog, like completely dry. It died and like completely dried out, like an Egyptian mummy or something like that. So complete. So and all of a sudden, I remember this cop just standing in my face, going, "Did you smoke this frog?" <laughs> and like everything in me is like everything in me is like, "Fuck you." <laughs> smoke frog <laughs> and I just you know they were so insistent on it and I guess there's I you know later on I found I guess there is some species of frog somewhere in like in like Rio de Janeiro that you can smoke and has a hallucinogenic sort of effect but um, it was not a frog that you found anywhere in San Bernardino California and um, and those are the kind of situations I would get in. It wasn't like running and gunning. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm dealing with Colombian drug dealers and trading kilos of heroin. It was like Excedrin PM overdosing smoking frog with the cops kind of moments. That sort of highlights the places I would go. Uh, pathetic, suicidal, dying on the inside to find a way to live. And, um, you know, it started off, uh, I don't remember my first drink of alcohol. I really don't. I was always at my parents' leg for it. Um, I do remember the first time my parents asked, I was at, my parents were gone, and I had a babysitter. And the babysitter said to me, she said, uh, when your parents are gone, you can do whatever you want. And I'm like eight years old. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, it's like, it's my chance. You know, it's like, let's do something. And I'm living in Potsdam, Pennsylvania, in this little rural community, and there's a cornfield behind us, and there's two houses on the side, and like the nearest store is like five miles away. And all I'm thinking is, I want to do something. Like, yeah, but you know, it, I didn't have the, the experience or the tool set to say, let's get it on. Let's get some platform shoes and Elvis costume, disco lights, neon, crank it some X and some, you know, some, you know, a case, a keg of beer and some vodka and uh, let's do a couple lines of Coke and bring on the strippers and let's just, you know, I didn't have a tool, but that's what I wanted at eight. You know what I mean? It's like, I just needed to turn it up. It was not okay, you know? And I don't remember a time when, um, I don't remember a time, you know, when they say alcoholism, what alcoholism is sober, 
is restless, irritable, and discontent. I am restless, I am not settled anywhere, I need to be somewhere else, I am irritable, you're not doing it right, and I'm discontent. Um, I'm just, this isn't enough, I need more. I need to turn it up, you need to, you know, you need to change, and you know what, I could be coming at you like, you need to change, you need to do something different, you need to do it right kind of a thing, and you can ask anybody who's I've ever sponsored, I can be coming at you like that, it doesn't matter if you're doing exactly right, my attitude doesn't change, because it's from within me the discomfort, it's not about you. And so this restlessness, this irritability, this discontentment, that is alcoholism. And the solution to alcoholism is alcohol for an alcoholic um, until it stops working. And then you, jails, institutions, or death unless you find the solution in those 12 steps. At least that's been my experience so far. Um, I don't know many people that haven't gone, I really don't know any people who have gone on to stay sober long term without some form as it says in the doctor's opinion of moral psychology. Um, you can choose it in a non-AA format. There are people that go into church, there are people that go on these retreats that have some sort of realignment with their mor morality, but um, I needed this. I needed to put plain and simple. And um, it took a while to get here, you know? It, you know, eighth grade, I'm coming home from school, after school, and I'm all alone. I'm 250 pounds, I have an afro, I am five foot ten. I do not fit in with the little pretty blonde girls at, in California. I'm going to school in Beverly Hills, and I come home after school at three in the afternoon. There's no one with me. It's not social drinking. I'm hitting the cabinet, and I'm taking an inch off of every bottle I can find in my mother's little one cabinet that she has for liquor, like Midori, gin, triple sec, whatever I can find. It doesn't mix. Throwing it into a tumbler, downing it, throwing it back a piece of bed, I'm getting there with effect, and there's nothing social about that. I, no one ever taught me to do that. I am leveraging the experience of doing that by taking it to the corner with the bad kids that were smoking cigarettes and letting them know what my experience, strength, and hope was with drinking alcohol and having them sort of up the ante and call my bluff and I'm, of course, having to engage with what they're doing and I just kind of started on the road, but I didn't care. You can offer me whatever you want to offer me. I'm going to do it simply because you are the first person I ever felt comfortable being around. I can call you a friend. I can lie to myself and say it's okay. And... Um, so, you know, and it starts off real simple, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, you know, and it confuses me when I get to A and they talk about people that would like come in here and they take a sip of alcohol and then they're like out with a brown paper bag and they could never, you know, I, it, it wasn't like that for me. It was progressive. It, it you know, at first it was like, I, I thought I was just drinking at first because all of a sudden I had people to hang out with, you know, and um, then freshman year in high school, then it's like on the weekends kind of a thing, and isn't it cool to be out? And then sophomore year, it's like, um, yeah, you know, I find boys, so it's kind of like, now I gotta do something about the dieting, and so then I'm kind of in an eating disorder, and then it's drinking, and then, um, well, if I'm gonna take away food, and I've got alcohol on the weekends, and I gotta go to school, I might as well have pills. And you know, my mom, I, I'm stealing like Costco versions of Vicodin, Valium, and Xanax from my mom's in law, she's Dennis. Um, and I uh, have that, and then I'm, you know, uh, they were very into Huff and Rush, I don't know if you know, and then there was uh, funny cigarettes, and then there was um, stealing credit cards, and there was writing bad checks, and there was, um, you know, all sorts of lying, and then the boys, and then, you know, and it's not just Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, now it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or it's during the week on Tuesdays, and um, it's just kind of getting messy. By the time I'm a junior in high school, I have the opportunity to sort of like, because it felt claustrophobic, like the, the lies I've been telling to the groups of people, like I had the group of academic people where I wanted, to, I wanted to live like the girl in the Seventeen magazine cover. I had to get good grades, I had to look good, I had to like, or at least attempt 
that. I didn't tell them the truth about the people that I'm hanging out with in the corner of the parking lot and smoking cigarettes, and I didn't tell those people uh, about my family, and it was all kind of like, you know. If you went to a party in high school and you didn't know the girl who owned the, par the house, you were just there because everyone else was there, that was me. Um, and I would lie to myself and tell myself they were, um, they were my friends, when in reality they would steal my parents' booze, they'd abuse the house, they'd, they'd steal property, they'd break property, and oh well, those are my friends. I get an opportunity to go to the next solution. You know, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm going from one bad coping skill to the next. You know, um, and the next one is, I'm gonna get out of town. I'm gonna start over. Uh, I go to South America. I'm an exchange student in South America. I tell myself I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna throw it into fifth gear. I'm gonna, you know, fly straight and sit up and, and I'm gonna be a good girl and I'm gonna, you know, be a member of this really nice family and this really strong, um, you know, community-based family with, uh, a mother and a father and three daughters that go to Catholic girls school and I'm going to learn to Spanish and I'm going to become this cultured person. I had no desire at all to learn to speak Spanish. It was or to learn the culture. It was 100% about getting out of town and not being with the people that knew I was lying and just not being found out. The impending doom, the impending sanity, the impending celibacy. I just couldn't be a part of it. And so I get to South America and I'm, you know, trying to be a good girl and I'm going to Catholic girls school and I'm probably, you know, I've gone from 250 down to like 140 at this point because I'm always you know, whatever. And um, so I'm about 140 pounds at 5 foot 10 now, and I'm just really, I think I look the part. Like, I have a little Catholic girl school uniform, I just think I'm American and cute and sweet, and they had no idea what they let into their house. And so I'm trying for, <laughs> I'm trying for about four months to just hold it together, you know? And um, I, my friend Carl, he always talks about that, you know, you're not drinking, and it's just that thing, it's like, I. Turn it up. You're just, something inside you is not right. It's screaming to get out. You just want to, you know, unzip your skin and crawl out. And um, that thing starts. And so it's Christmas time. I just concave on myself. I can't even see you anymore. And I'm sitting at this party, and um, it's Christmas time, and all the women are dressed up to the nines, and they're just these full-figured Latin women with the heels and the satin dresses, and the men in the suits and the ties, and you know, and there's Catholic parades and the lights and the food and the drink, and it's just a, I'm at the governor's mansion at this party, and I'm the token white girl in the corner. I'm just kind of like cowered down, and I'm not talking to anyone, and I can't dance, and I don't want to do anything, you know. And someone hands me rum and coke. And that decision I made, the first decision I made, the earnest attempt to try to stop, you know, I had no mental defense. It was like I took a sip, and as I'm taking a sip, it set my head racing, and as my head is racing that I shouldn't be doing this, I'm thinking, you know, it's like two trains of thought go. It's like the good wolf and the bad wolf are talking at the same time. It's like the bad wolf is like, no, you gotta stop, you gotta put this tank in, it's fattening, and you're gonna end up with five guys, you're gonna get a bad reputation, you start the whole thing over again, you, this is why you came to Venezuela, but my other hand's going, well, if I could just have one, maybe I'll just have finished the one, and then we'll stop. You know, it's not that fat, no big deal. So I'm kind of like, you know, and then I finish the drink, and then the thing is, is the commitment I to make myself to only have one, is the person who starts one drink. But the person who starts one drink is not the person who finishes one drink, because that person decides to have another drink. And so I get into the next drink, and the third, and the fourth, and all of a sudden it's like, that thing that happens to me is that when I couldn't see you, and all I was doing was consumed with myself, and I can't understand these people, and I can't defend myself, and I can almost understand them, but I can't say anything back, and I'm too embarrassed to open my mouth, because I can't, can't speak right, and they're gonna make fun of me, and I can't bear the idea of these people that are so beneath me making fun. I mean, just that thing is inside of me, so I don't open my mouth, and all of a sudden it's like, I can see you, but I don't care. You know, that thing that happens to me when I drink alcohol, that, 
I want to know you. Do you have any brothers or sisters? <laughs> really? How's your mom doing? She doing okay? All right. I'm going to go into business together. You're cute. What's your name? You know, all of a sudden I care. You're there. The, cl- the, the, the shroud is lifted. And um, so I'm dancing. Like, I don't know what I look like, but I feel like I'm dancing salsa. And I'm trying to make it look good. And all of a sudden I'm talking to people and I can speak Spanish. I'm doing real good with Spanish now. I've got no shame about it. Like, the shame is gone. I can, you know what? And I just, I'm, I'm having a great time. And I'm, people are laughing with me, it feels like. Not at me. And it's no longer, oh my God, are they gonna talk back to me kind of thing? It was like all of a sudden, they're so cool here. You know, that thing that happens, that change happened, and um, I had such a great night, and I came to the next morning, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, you did what you promised you weren't gonna do, but let's just finish up the Christmas holiday, and then you go back to Catholic girls' school in January, when it comes back around, you'll just, you know, you'll throw it back into fifth gear, and you'll not drink then. And um, if you open the book in Alcoholics Anonymous to chapter four, it says there are two questions in the very first paragraph of chapter four. If I cannot stop when I want to, and I can't control the amount I drink, you're alcoholic. And that essentially was what was happening to me. I had tried to stop or control the amount I took. I couldn't do it. And when I wanted to stop, which was, you know, on that January day when school started back up again, I couldn't. You know, I got up that morning, I threw on the Catholic girls' school uniform, I gained 40 pounds. The reputation I was worried about getting with the boys, I'd already had a boyfriend in those three weeks that was uh, 11 years older than I was. I had broken every every rule of the exchange student program I was on. And it was already like people were like, in the ear to the family about, you know what she's doing, you know, we see her out late at night at the discos and doing whatever, and uh, at a club, you know, and I'm like, so, I just stopped going to Catholic girl school, and I just started hanging out with a boyfriend during the day, and, you know, a month or so into it, I'm like, pretty much my hours are from like, three in the morning, and then I'm up and out of the house at noon, you know, kind of a thing, and the family's coming on me, and they've got three daughters that are younger than me, and I'm making a bad reputation for them, uh, you know, mujer dañada, mujer sucia, cochina, they say all these things to me, they're saying all these things to me, and I'm kind of like, you know what? You guys just don't get it. You're two-third world. You just, you're not sophisticated like I am, so you're the problem. I'm just going to do what the hell I want. You know, peace out, you know? And um, I stayed there, and I made it through the exchange student program, but I repeated that pattern over and over and over and over again for the next 15 years of my life. And what happens with that is I truly, I get to these places. I throw it into fifth gear. I'm going to get perfect. I'm going to get perfect. This time's going to be different. I'm going to have a good life. I'm finally going to be the woman I want to be. I'm going to be a good girl because it's really all I want to do. I mean, it really is all I want to do. But then it's just too much. I get too uncomfortable. Something happens, there's that mental blank spot. I step off the curb, I roll in the gutter, and just this onslaught of every just nasty little tabit I have just comes flooding in. And I think I'm having a great time until I'm so ashamed that I have to leave. And um, I did that again through San Diego. I was a biology student in San Diego, and you know, just all these little decisions I make. I'm going to be a biology student. I'm going to wear the horn rimmed glasses. And I, you say take t- 12 units, I take 20, and don't take calculus at 7 a.m. I can take calculus at 7 a.m. Don't you know who I am? And uh, you know, I start stop showing up to class, and I'll just show up for the exams. And all you know, we have to cram the weekend before the exam. And you know, I get home, and all of a sudden, my roommates have half the naval base in San Diego. They're at my apartment, and it's just a no-brainer. I'm going to drop out. And um, you know, I step up the curb, roll in the gutter, and uh, then I'm poli sci, and I'm going to be a poli sci major, and I'm working with Ralph Nader, and I'm going up and down the coast, and I'm knocking on doors, and uh, I'm fundraising for every left-wing cause I can find. And it's not because I care about politics, it's simply because I like to argue, and I want to make you look stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that gives me a sense of power. I mean, lack of power for Zara Dilemma. I, you know, I didn't know that's what I was doing. Um, I truly know nothing about politics today. 
I just know how to, you know, shoot a really mean eye roll at someone to let them know I think I'm better. And um, I do that through linguistics, and all of a sudden college isn't for me, and I leave San Diego, and there's just too much wreckage there, too many people who know my deal, and so I'm not talking to people in Venezuela, I'm not talking to people in San Diego, I'm not talking to people from high school, because they're going to, like, poison the well. I can't let the new people who know perfect Wendy meet the old people who knew nasty Wendy. So I get to Denver, and I'm going to be a good little secretary, and I can definitely be a blue-collar secretary. I'm just going to go to the job, and, and I'm working harder than ever. Throw it into fifth gear. Get perfect, you know, exercise every day, not drink, not drink, not drink, not drink, not smoke, not end up with the, all of the guys with a bad reputation and always worrying about whether or not I need to get some, get some tests taken and always worried about, like, you know, the cigarettes and, the, and my health and just constantly consumed and self that feeling, you know, so I'm just going to do it perfect. And, but that thing starts. And so I tell myself, okay, well, this time I'm going to get a second job. And I can get a second job as a cocktail waitress. And it's not going to be, I don't have to drink if I'm a cocktail waitress. You don't know who I am. Two weeks later, I'm drinking as a cocktail waitress at night, and uh, I'm sleeping under my desk as a secretary during the day, and it's just a mess, and as you can step off the curb, roll in the gutter, and Denver's a problem, they're too Midwestern, or too white. And I, um, and I leave, and I go to New York. In New York, I, um, I was there in Denver, I was at a club, he walked in, he's Cuban, he's got a big smile, he's from Queens, he's there on training, and all of a sudden it just like pops in my head, oh, New York's a great idea, and so, um, you know, I'm... He, I'm absolutely determined and completely convinced that if I, he was mine, that the problem would be solved. So he leaves to go back to New York, and I just get obsessed with the idea of going to New York, so I follow him to New York. I don't tell him I'm following him. He has no idea. I'm just going to let him, I'm just going to chase him until he catches me, and um, I'll just spin control it kind of thing. Um, and New York is miserable. It's just, um, but really at that point, I'd only maybe see him a couple times a month. I was never able to close the deal, but I don't know if I ever even wanted to. I couldn't pull it together to be sober girl for more than a night or two on a weekend anyway. Uh, the rest of the time, it was just a pit of booze and alcohol and pills and, uh, and just, I mean, didn't, I was at the place where I was kind of not leaving the apartment. And then he said, he calls me one day and he says, hey, I'm moving to Miami. Uh, I said, oh my God, what a coincidence, so am I. <laughs> And he says, great, and you can rent a room in my house, kind of thing. I'm like, okay, well, here's my chance. I'm going to get my chance to play house, convince him that if he is my man, that everything's going to be right for me and him. And um, I couldn't do it. I truly had to lie to him to tell him I was going away flying on business for the weekend, to go to the motel, to bring the alcohol, to bring the men, to bring the cigarettes, to do whatever I needed to be a pig just so I could breathe again, and then go back and pretend I was Susie Howe, housemaker. And, you know, eventually I just had one of those drama moments where like, he didn't tell you the truth kind of a thing. And he's like, oh, you have exactly 24 hours to get out of my house. <laughs> like my amends to him today is to never see him again. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to make it work. I finally, I get back to California and my mom is sending me to every psychiatrist, every past life reader, acupuncturist, whatever, what's wrong with her. I have my moment with the cops and the smoking the frog and um, finally, I go back to school, and I'm going to white knuckle my way back through uh, my computer science degree at Cal Poly, and I am 350 pounds at this point. I have fuchsia pink hair. I am at any given time the same color as my hair, just from the rage I felt. I truly remember walking around every day with pains in my chest. Um, I have 11 and a half years sober, and I never walk around that angry today. Never. But I was angry all the time. Uh, I walked, the day I walked graduation from Cal Poly, I had so many job offers. It was the dot-com boom, there was so much money out there, and um, I was not remotely qualified for it, but they were just throwing it at you, you know? And you didn't even have to stay all day. It was like, you know, a six-hour work week for, 
salaries that my father would never even dream of. And I remember at some point, it was within a couple weeks after graduating, I had beer with me all the time, and I was driving around my little Toyota pickup truck, and I had a beer, and I remember thinking, I'm not going to try to stop anymore. It was just a surrender. I'm not going to try to stop anymore. I'm not going to try to get good anymore. This works, you know, and when I chose the alcohol, like all the other stuff, kind of goes, well, the boys and the cigarettes didn't, but for the most part, alcohol's my first solution, and it's my first love, and um, even though, you know, in a movie, meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I identify as an alcoholic out of respect for our common solution. Anyone in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you hope, had the solution at one point of alcohol. They have the ism, and alcohol was a solution to treat that ism. I believe I belong to maybe 12 other different fellowships as well. But because not everyone in here is going to have my issues with macaroni and cheese, there is no point to me bringing up the fact that I'm also a food addict in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't serve the greater commonality of the room. So for, I say I'm an alcoholic here. And when I'm in an OA meeting, I say I'm a food addict. And when I'm in an NA meeting, I'm an addict. And when, so I try to stick to what serves us as a group. Um, and that's training that I have to have here. That's a move a muscle to change a thought training. I have to think of you as an action of my program because it doesn't come naturally. I don't think about you at all. I really don't. It's a sad truth. Um, so, a year and a half later, I'm up to two cases of beer a day. I come to in the morning at about five in the morning and I start on the first case of beer and I'm not eating and I'm not drinking anything else. I'm only doing light beer and cigarettes, playing with porn on the computer or watching television. At any given time, I have any array of vomit or urine on my clothing. Uh, I don't leave the house. Um, I try to get my run in first thing at around 6 a.m., like maybe after a beer we can kind of hold down the shakes, but not when I'm too far along, you know. Um, at the place where I can't really lift more than two cases anyway, you know. Um, I, uh, I'm just, I'm, and I don't even care about the behavior I'm engaging in. I had an arrangement with a liquor store guy and a pizza delivery guy, and I got all sorts of my own little brothel thing happening there, but it's really my payment is booze, so, you know. Uh, you get what you pay for. Anyways, <laughs> um, I called a cab one day because I was terrified. It was one of my methods of controlling and enjoying my drinking. I called a cab one day and he was operating on his primary purpose of, of um, recognizing a fellow alcoholic and carrying the message. And he started talking about being sober and sober and sober. And he's taking me to one of these little dive bars. He knows where he's taking me. And he asked me, he said, do you think you're an alcoholic? And I just kind of flippantly said, I know I'm an alcoholic. And um, he didn't have shock like, like a person who was normal didn't drink. And he didn't have laughter like someone who drank like us, you know. He just nodded and he started handing me all this literature over the seat, you know. And he is not someone who had anything in common with me. He's six foot four, he's like 70 years old, he's got blue eyes, he's a cab driver, he's a real kind of rugged ex-Navy guy kind of a thing. Um, you know, and he starts handing me all this stuff in the car, and I'm like, well, I'm going to this bar, and I think I look cute, because I got my little red Italian purse, and I can't fit that all in there, so I'll just take your card. And um, I just remember him staring at me, nodding, as I, you know, walk into the bar, or whatever, stumble into the bar. A couple days later, a couple more levels of incomprehensible demoralization, you know, down the scales, I call him, and he says, do you think you can not drink today? And I said, yeah, I think I can not drink today. And, um, he came and picked me up, took me to my first meeting of AA, and um, he, it was just, he was the perfect person for me. He um, passed away with 29 years sober this year, and there were not 
any, there was not any parking, there were no seats left to be had, there was no standing room available. People were being turned away from his memorial. He helped so many people, that cab driver. Uh, he would have loved that, and um, I was happy to attend. Um, so I get to my first meeting, and it's like linoleum floors and metal folding chairs, and you know, not a table this nice. It was more like particle board, you know, English schoolroom. You know, there's uh, elementary schoolroom particle board tables were like chewed on the corners or whatever, and like there's popcorn ceiling, and there's a bad disco ball in the center, and there's the 12 steps and 12 traditions, and it's a group of like six people that wouldn't nor ever mix together, you know. And um, one guy's sitting at the podium, and he's talking about having to like um, swallow mints to hide the smell, and you know, and it's family getting at him about the shakes and, you know, uh, needing to throw up in the morning to get more booze down. I identified with all of it. I'd never heard anyone express that level of honesty from anywhere. I didn't think, hear, think people talked honestly about it. And, you know, the cab driver walks over to me at the meeting and he hands me, slams down the big book in front of me and he says, um, and he flips it open to chapter three and he highlights taking a trip, not taking a trip. And it was like, it was truly like the heavens parted and whatever it is, that universal whatever goodness kind of just reached down and said, Wendy, there you are. But his reason for doing it was because his last name was Tripp, Ms. Jim Tripp. He had no idea. And that's kind of like how it works for me. The person carrying the message may not um, be doing it of their own will. They're just put in front of you under their own motivation, a carrot that, you know, somebody else tossed out, and they have no idea why they're crossing your path. And the same thing is true for me. I'm just sharing my message here today, good or bad, right or wrong, fun or not, I don't care. I'm just hoping that if one of you hears something you need to hear, and I don't know what that is, it could simply be, oh, definitely be sure to speak from a podium. But I'm just doing it. People at Alcoholics Anonymous, they ask me to show up, I show up. You know, uh, they ask me to do what I'm supposed to do, and I do it. And um, you know, it's, it's a good deal. I, it keeps me honest with what's going on in my life. So I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have much more time, but you know, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous for a while. I'm sitting around. I'm, I'm going through the seed planting phase. Right, Luke? The seed planting phase where you're just there. You're listening. You don't know if you agree. You're in and out. You're not whatever's going on, right? I'm just kind of like, I'm hearing this stuff. I'm not really sure if I'm willing to do it yet. And um, so I drink again because I'm not doing this stuff. I mean, it's like going to the gym. If you go to the gym and you just sit around and watch the people exercise, you are not going to get into shape. <laughs> if you're not doing the stuff in the book, you are not going to stay sober. I mean, it just, you know, it's, I say that because it just is my experience. I it just don't see them come in here and not do that stuff and not stay sober and stay sober. They just don't. They can see, and then here's the, the bugaboo of the thing is, you can come in and stop drinking and go a long time not drinking. But it's going to come back, that thing's going to bite you in the ass. It will, it does, you know. And if you're around here long enough, you've seen enough people try it. And it just doesn't work. Open the book, do what it says in the book. Find somebody to guide you through what it says in the book. It's really not that big a deal. Don't make it a bigger deal than it is in the book. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of people that are alcoholic, which means that they have the dis-ease of alcoholism, which means that they are mentally ill. Alcoholism is a mental illness. This fellowship will kill you if the steps don't save you first. We are all here because we are not all there. We are not the bedrock of mental health. That is across the board. Now, saying all of that, I will say this, that you will not find a more loving, more compassionate, more generous group of human beings in my experience. And if you do find them, let me know. I, we, have a, we, we share a common peril. We have been to hell and back. 
we are willing to do for each other what no one else is going to be willing to do for us. But if you are not in that book and following the book as opposed to some, you know, Joe the cute guy from the other meeting, um, chances are pretty slim that you'll get the chance to stay. Um, so after I drank, I, you know, I was drunk in bars, sharing with people and, you know, how important the nine step was in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, just tell them off, you know, in the bar, drunk. Um, I eventually got to a place, I mean, because I, I couldn't come back of my own will, I eventually got to a place where um, I ended up at Ashland Home, uh, detox some of the women I've shared about going through here, um, which is free. It's uh, first come, first serve. It's available to women that um, want a chance to get clean. And really what it does is it just kind of holds, your, holds you down for 30 days. It holds you down and it gets you initiated into the program. It teaches to do things like share and share honestly. And I had been in the hospital the night before and I had said that prayer and I, the last obstacle was the God thing for me. And um, I finally got willing to just go, you know what, let's just pretend God's there. You know what I mean? And really kind of that's what it was. I'll do whatever you say. I'll do, you know, let's just pretend. And I, you know, in step two it says, do I now believe or am I willing to believe? And I got to the place where I was willing to believe. And I'm just going to like, I'm going to do it their way and I'm just going to pretend and let's just act as if, you know. And, uh, I, and I was still just kind of struck, you know, I was still not comfortable with it kind of a thing, but I was about 15 days into it and somebody was holding up a card and uh, it just said, I know it's there, I feel the tug, um, the caption on the card. And it just struck me as that's exactly what it is. That God consciousness for me is something deep inside that says, this is the right thing to do. And because you are powerless over alcohol, let's just confirm what you think the right thing is to do with another human being who's a little less emotionally invested in your life than you are. And I run that by a sponsor, and that's pretty much the guidelines I go by today. That higher power for me, my highest good, has come from uh, what I believe to be the right thing to do. And uh, my sponsor enforces in me to be the right thing to do. And the group acknowledges is the right thing to do. Because there's a lot of times, I'll share honestly about the shit I'm doing in the rooms, and I'll get this, ooh, like people in the room. Like, I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe that wasn't so good. And then I'll tell my sponsor, you know, I'm like, oh my God, can you believe what they did to me? Blah, blah, blah. And she'll be shopping, and she'll like, like, not even like, be giving me the time to even pay attention to what I'm saying, kind of a thing. And I'll be like, oh my God! <laughs> That's my relationship with her. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, she does that. Like, whenever I'm going through drama, she'll be, like, shopping and laughing with her girlfriends and, like, just kind of like, oh, hold on for a minute, and I'll be having, like, a crisis, and she'll be like, oh, oh, look at that one, that's medium, that's cute, you should try that on. I'll hear that conversation going in the background, like, it just, it, there's something about the fact that she's so uninvested in what I believe is the end of the world that it just, it kind of, like, takes me out of it. But, um, so got super involved in service work because I'm the chick const constantly raising her hand, I don't understand this, and you better help me with God, and I don't get it, blah, blah, blah. And so they're making me the secretary and the treasurer and the literature person, and I'm showing up and I'm the 10 minute speaker for everybody because I got a big mouth. And, uh, you know, and before you know it, three years roll around, I still have huge you know, periods of incredible suicidal tendency. People aren't doing my way. I can't imagine living. This isn't right kind of a thing, but I'm crazy involved in service. I jump into H&I. Um, I am at every AA function there is to be at. I am human doing, not human being kind of a thing. And, but I'm continuing to take the inventories. I'm continuing to you know, share those things on a nightly basis with another sponsor, with my sponsor, with other alcoholics too. And uh, I'm part of online email groups. and I. Uh, get the opportunity to start traveling and speaking with my sponsor to Sweden and to Denmark and to Canada and Mexico and um, England. Uh, I got to speak everywhere uh, just because I, you know, whatever, I was willing to open my mouth and tell the truth about what was going on with me. And 
Um, I got really involved in young people's. Um, I'm not young. I am 40. I'm going to be. I just turned 46. Oh my God. <laughs> just turned 46, and I'm not young. But uh, you know, young people's and Alcoholics Anonymous is, is for people who are who have room to grow. They say so. There's not necessarily an age limit, but there is definitely an immaturity factor that really resonates with me. And so, I mean, if you want to have like, if there's going to be like a foam rave dodgeball party. Please count me in, because I am down with like throwing a ball at somebody's face. You know what I mean? And that hasn't gone away. And um, so I've gotten involved in doing all these things. And one year I got invited to uh, a young people's masquerade party in Paris. I mean, that doesn't happen sitting behind a bar. My life is so stupid better than it ever could have been drinking. I truly was like the fat girl who had to like convince you that it had been so long, so toss me a bone, cutie pie. I mean, it was just like, I, there was nothing about me that was even remotely. But today I have, you know, I have a great job. Um, I make more, I mean, I make a ton of money. I, make, I do really well for a living. And I just bought a condo a couple years ago on my own. And I have a dog and two cats that I support. And uh, I have like a ton of friends, you know, and uh, people that, you know, really have helped me with absolutely everything. And um, I love my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I am truly comfortable in my own skin. I don't walk around with that shame. I am okay with who I am today. Um, and it's taken so long just to be like, you know, courage to change the things you can, accept the things you can, and the wisdom to know the difference, and it's come so slowly. Um, Mostly because like, you try them all, you know, you eventually get the wisdom through trying them all and just having one not work, you know. And then, you know, all of a sudden out of nowhere, you've got to try again because the thing that was working isn't working anymore. And like you next inventory and next group of people and whatever. So life goes on. Um, I love this deal. I truly just, you know, I get up in the morning, I say the third and seventh step prayer. Um, I, I mean I will be done throughout the day. I know I have value today. I've taken the esteem of the labs to build some self-esteem. And I just live my life. I just live my life. I'm not going, oh, must be a saint, must be a saint. I'm not. I cuss still. I still hang out with do. I mean, I'm constantly making fun of people in meetings. I'm, I mean, there's so many things I do. We are not a glum lot. We have a lot of fun here. Um, and then at the end of the day, I just do a review of the day. And the things that, I'm, that don't sit right with me, the behaviors I engaged in that were not okay with my soul, I kind of look at them, I clean them up, I change them, and I move on. Um, you know, and it's just, I, you know, sobriety is a loose garment, you know. And um, anyway, so that's enough out of me. Thank you for letting me talk. <laughs>